it ringing in there. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> All right, how about this? Can everybody hear me okay? Now we're good. Hey, Eastgate is nothing if not unprofessional. So uh, that's just the way that goes. Uh, normally we have announcements, uh, as I mentioned to you before. Uh, we were going to skip that today. I actually do have a lot to cover. Let's pray before we, we get into this. Uh, we'll let those guys kind of work through that thing. Father, uh, we just thank you for this time that we have together to gather together around your word. I pray, Lord, that you just guide us and lead us. I pray that you uh, give us open hearts, open minds to you and your purposes. Uh, I pray, Father, for uh, a, a heart of love for one another as we we, as we look at your word and as we consider how it is that we can apply this word to our lives and to this church. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. How are we doing? Are we still okay? I don't think it's ringing or anything, is it? it not, from my side, I can't hear it. So we're just going to hope that that's the way it is for everybody. Uh, listen, we're going to do a follow-up teaching this morning. Um, uh, to uh, uh, our talk last week. Last week we were talking about Eastgate as a community. We were looking at, you know, our, our purpose, our values, our vision. Today I want to just quickly revisit a talk. Well, I say quickly. <laughs> I want to quickly, I want to revisit, I'm so used to saying quickly, uh, revisit a topic that, that I touched on last week, but one um, that's important to us because it does have a direct effect on all of us as we gather here today. We're going to be looking at the topic of women in ministry in the church. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've noticed that both men and women uh, teach here. Way back when Ruth Peterson was here, she would teach for me. Julie Gendum has taught. Uh, others have taught. My, uh, Janelle taught, has taught uh, many times here. Uh, for some, this may be controversial that this happens. For others, you know, it, it might not even, even, maybe not even thought about it, or it's it's something that is in alignment with your, with your views already. Um, it's important for me that you hear why I believe we have a biblical basis for approaching ministry this way uh, within this church. I'm also going to say at the outset, this is something that sets us apart from Calvary Chapel. If you've been a part of Calvary Chapel or, or, or have come here uh, to be part of a Calvary Chapel, we've been in association with them for 20 years. Uh, but this is an area that I believe God has been leading us for some time as Eastgate. And I just need you to know that's at odds. What we're going to be talking about today is at odds with Calvary Chapel uh, distinctives. So not exactly sure where that lands us <laughs> with Calvary Chapel. We'll find all that out, I guess. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, first of all, you might be thinking, well, why, why is this controversial? Like, what, what's the big deal? Traditionally, the church has, uh, at large, has been divided by the topic of women in ministry, falling into two camps, basically. There is the complementarian view and the egalitarian view. The complementarian view, and, and honestly, this is really, a, it's really a spectrum, uh, and, and there is no way that I can do justice to, to a, a view like this, to a, a position uh, in, in a brief explanation. But in its boldest form, we'll go out to that. In its boldest form, it says that women were created to be in a support role for men and that men alone have been given responsibility for leadership in general uh, within the church. The egalitarian view says that because of the work of, the, of Christ and, and the promise of, of God's renewal of all things, men and women can equally be used by God in ministry or leadership. 
Now, if I were to be honest with you, while I find myself more sympathetic with the biblical logic of the egalitarian position, I'm still uncomfortable with the label as a whole. Um, Sometimes it's associated with uh, new orthodoxy or classic uh, Christian liberalism, something that I'm not comfortable with, nor would they be comfortable with me. Uh, As with everything that steers my approach to our Christian walk, and how things are formulated here within this church. I want to know what the Bible says. I mean, anybody that knows me at all knows that that's my priority. It knows that that's my number one concern. What is the biblical record instructing us about? How, you know, I don't care. I honestly, I really don't care what tradition says. I don't care what culture says. That's, that's not important to me. What's important is to know what the biblical, you know, uh, flow is in, in, in this, what it, what it is that the biblical Bible directs us towards. So I want to be consistent. I just want to be sure that I'm consistent with the biblical narrative in all its forms. One of the problems that happens within the church is we are quick to grab a verse here and a verse there and build like entire doctrines around that. And traditionally, the church has done that a lot and been very comfortable with it. I myself am not. Eastgate is here because I was not comfortable with that traditional approach to things. As uh, you know, the basis for starting Eastgate was I was looking at the 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 the, the church culture at large as I had experienced. It, and I was concerned that it didn't seem it didn't seem consistent with what we see within the biblical record. So let's take a look at what the Bible says, how it directs us when it comes to this topic of men and women and, and ministry uh, before God. So for me, the most basic place to start would be at the beginning, where we are first introduced to the human race in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let's look at what it says there. God said, let us make human beings... In our image to be like us, they will reign over. And if you've got your Bible open, you'll see he lists off all the little animals and stuff. But basically, it's a way of saying they'll reign over creation. So verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So the, the idea of image of God has to do with reigning on this earth as as regents, you could say. we The image of God means that we are representatives of God over creation, of of God's rule over creation. And right off the bat, we see that there is a differentiation of sex. There's male and female, but there is no differentiation of responsibilities. Both are equally commissioned to rule over the created order as God's representative rule. This is how it was at the beginning. This is how God created it. God's original order of things. We've got this picture of mutuality and unity and purpose for both sexes, each bringing their strength and distinct perspectives that they have to represent who God is and what God's rule is to all of creation. We know the story. Things go wrong. Uh, They fall from this original position, and the curse of sin is introduced. And we really need to look at that curse. It's really important for us to understand what's happening here in this biblical narrative. In Genesis 3, when God pronounced the consequence of sin on humanity, for the woman it reads, verse 16, He said to the woman, I'll sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, in pain you'll give birth, and though you will have desire for your husband, he will rule over you. So look at that for a minute. Let that sink in. That the consequence of sin is the disruption of God's original order, resulting in the male ruling over the female. In fact, honestly, if you look at the entire biblical story, 
power over people hierarchies in general is the result of the fall. From the, from the moment this happens, we tumble out of the garden and we see it developing over and over again. This sense of a desire for power over people, which results in pain and misery and death throughout this entire creation. We spiral farther and farther away from God's original order. So I really want you to understand this. The, the patriarchy, the rule of men, is the result of the fall. And that fallen pattern, we see it carry out through the rest of the Old Testament. Not just as it touches this, as it touches all of these things. As it touches all of human existence. They, we find the human race now struggling with this fallen condition. But even in the midst of that brokenness, we get glimpses of something else. Something beyond the fall. Glimmers of God's intended redemption. Of what he intends to do when he's going to set things right. Where the curse is undone. And part of that is we see women are re-empowered. And listen, time prohibits me from going into a deep dive in this and trying to dig up every example in the Bible. This is, I mean, it'd be a good study. It's a good, uh, you know, uh, extra credit. There's no credit, but you'll get it. Uh, you, can, you can look at some of the examples that are in there. I can pick out a, a few. And I'm emphasizing, this is just a few. I mean, we could start with Hagar. We could start all kinds of places. But if we start like right after the Exodus... As God is developing the nation of Israel, in Exodus 15:20 we have Miriam, Moses' sister, who is described to us as a prophet. And Micah the prophet, many years later, reminding Israel of the leaders that God gave them, said, For I brought you out of Egypt, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. So Miriam is listed right there among the leaders of Israel that were guiding them towards the development of their nation. After that, during the time of the judges, we've got this outstanding example of Deborah, who was a judge over Israel. The judge over Israel at that time was the prophetic leader who would guide the people and, 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 and lead them according to God's purposes. In Judges 4, 4 and 5, it describes her this way. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was the prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah. She even had her own palm. And, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. In other words, she would give the counsel that was necessary, that needed for the whole of the community of Israel to, to see how they were to be formed around God's intent. And man, if you read her whole account, she's amazing. She's marshalling the army. She's even volunteering to go into the battle zone. And unlike almost every other judge during this period of Israel's history, not a single bad word is recorded about Deborah. Her character, her abilities, and actions made her an outstanding spokesperson for God. Glimmers of what God intended to do in undoing the curse that came because of sin. Before her, I mean, like I said, we've got, we got Hagar, we got Rahab in Jericho, later Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Women who were instrumental in shaping Israel's future independent of men's rule over them. In the time of the kings, 2 Kings 22... Israel had fallen from, from their place of covenant relationship with God so far that the young king, the good king, Josiah, is, is commanding that they go and, and put the temple back in order because we want to reestablish worship. And they go into the temple and they discover a, a scroll. It's the book of the law, the Levitical law. Nobody knew what to do with it. They had fallen so far from God, they were like, what, what, what's this? They bring it to the king, and the king is distressed, and he tears his clothes and says, I don't know what to do with it. What do we do with it? 
And so here's what they decide in 2 Kings 22. So Hilkah, the priest, Ahicham, Akbar, Shaphan, Asai, all these dudes went to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom. She said to them, down in verse 15, she said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. And she goes on to just give the word of the Lord of instruction and warning to the king. This is Huldah, the prophet, who, who they went to to seek counsel because they'd fallen so far from God, we don't know how to get back. And so she's the one who provided that wisdom. All through the Old Testament, these glimpses of what God intended and the good plans that God has for undoing what happened in the fall, undoing what has happened to the human race. Those are, again, those are just a few examples. There are more than that. When we get to the New Testament things really ramp up. I mean, in Luke's gospel, right away we're introduced to Mary who breaks out into a song mirroring uh, Miriam's song before her. And then after Jesus is born, I mean, it's starting right off the bat. We're introduced in Luke chapter 2 to Anna, the prophet, who when she saw the baby Jesus, she talked about him, the child Jesus, to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. She was a prophet heralding to the people that the Christ had been born, that things were about to change. Then Jesus begins his ministry, and all of the Gospels account for the fact that there are women who are part of this group of people that are following Jesus around the countryside, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's totally out of form with the the cultural norms of that time. And, And the first time that Jesus ever openly declares his Messiahhood, that he is Messiah, it's to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and, and she goes out and she preaches to her whole village that, that Jesus, that the Messiah had come. She's preaching Jesus to an entire village and with great effect. They all come and have uh, their, they put their faith in him. And so, you know, we pointed this out when we taught through Luke just recently. The first ones to discover the empty tomb and be commissioned directly by Jesus to go and tell people that Jesus had risen from the dead were these women who were following him during his ministry. So Jesus' death and resurrection heralded a return back to God's original intent for creation, which includes this mutuality and unity of purpose among all people in advancing God's kingdom. So women in all of the gospel accounts are empowered alongside of the men that are there. After Christ's ascension and and the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and great phenomena is taking place and people are looking at it and we know that there were men and women gathered there and they're all suddenly empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to to speak in other tongues and people from faraway places are hearing these men and women speaking these things and Peter explains it by quoting the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days... This is in Acts chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. In other words, they will communicate God's heart to people in ways that edify, instruct, etc., And so that's exactly what happens. And so we read in Acts, the church expands and explodes 
We read about Philip's daughters in Acts chapter 21 who devoted themselves to the gift of prophecy, communicating words from God to edify and instruct people. We discover Priscilla and Aquila, who are a husband and wife team, where at, at complete odds with the Roman patriarchal system of that time, her name is mentioned first in half of the mentions of this couple. Her name comes first, and I'm telling you, that's not just like, oh, yeah, that's sweet or cute. That was huge. That was scandalous within the, the, the culture of that time for that to happen. It was sending a message to us. And, 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 you know, they hear the young convert Apollos speak. And in Acts chapter 18, it says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. In other words, discipled him and taught him what the gospel is all about. But it says they explained, not Aquila explained while Priscilla made coffee. She taught Apollos alongside of her husband. When Paul sends greetings to them in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, he calls them his co-workers in the ministry. Not my co-worker and his wife, but my co-workers in the ministry of Christ. Both of them Again, echoing back to that mutuality and unity we saw when the human race was created to, to serve as God's regents over creation. In fact, Romans 16 has some really interesting acknowledgments in it. Like in, in verse 1, as Paul is, is writing to me, he says, I commend uh, to you our sister Phoebe, who is the deacon at the church in Sincrea. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. What you have to understand, what he's doing there, is that the letter that was being delivered to them, he entrusted to Phoebe. That's what is is being said in this. He gave it to Phoebe. Phoebe took it to the Romans, which meant that she is the one who would stand up before the group and read Paul's words, and she would be the one to answer any questions that they may have, since Paul entrusted her with that letter. Take this letter, take it to the Roman churches, explain it for me, and he commends her to them. In fact, uh, you know, her job description that he applies to her, diakonon, it's the very same word that he uses to describe himself in 1 Corinthians 3. And the word is used interchangeably with servant, deacon, minister. It all carries the same connotation. One who is serving the larger community of the church and representing God to them. Also in Romans 16, and this one's really something. Paul sends greetings to Andronicus and Junia. And, and look at what he says there. Greet Andronicus and Junia. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. And the, and the phrasing in the Greek makes it very clear. It's kind of difficult to, to wrangle into English, but it makes it very clear. They are among the apostles. They are respected among all the other apostles that are out there. They are apostles, highly Respected apostles, the respected apostle Junia. It's a woman's name. Junia. Now, in the Middle Ages, interestingly enough, somebody got in there and monkeyed with the text and changed it to Junius. So many, many years went by within the church and they thought it was a man named Junius. Of course, there's no historical record of anyone ever in any context having the name Junius. Uh, Junia, of course, was very common as a woman's name. It was a woman apostle, and Paul is sending his greetings to them as highly respected. And why not? 
Because Paul plainly says in Galatians chapter 3, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of the fallen divisions and categorizations that excluded or marginalized people are no longer present in Christ. Because in Christ, we are returning back to God's original intent for the creation and the human race. Both male and female, he made them to represent his reign and rule, his loving kindness to all of creation. So Paul worked with and greeted women as well as men as co-workers and ministers in Christ. And he expected women to both pray and prophesy publicly because he gave them instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 on how they should do that in a way that respected the cultural protocols. This means he expected her to give messages and exegete scripture publicly in ways that would edify or instruct. So here we are with a momentum that's building from the Old Testament, coming to bloom in the Gospels and then put on display as fruit in the New Testament letters, God undoing the curse of the fall and eradicating the power over people dynamic of sin, returning men and women to that original place of mutuality and unity as God's children over creation. But then we come to two passages from letters written by Paul, and it feels like the train derails at that point. It's kind of like... And, you know, for those who hold the complementarian position of ministry, these are the gotcha passages, the gotcha verses... In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes, women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive. We're not told to whom, just as the law says, we're not told what law. Then in 1 Timothy 2, he writes, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Okay, so how do we interpret these verses? Like those are two and they're right there and they're right on the surface. How do we interpret this? Now, somebody said to me one time, why do we need to interpret it? It says what it says. Let's just abide by it. The reason that we have to interpret them is because of everything that I was talking about at the front end of this teaching. Everything that's moving in this direction, there is a flow within the biblical record. Uh, The whole curse and the momentum to undo that Curse the fact that we've got examples of women doing the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. That becomes a problem that we can't just say, oh, well, it is what it is. Because from that perspective, we have a glaring contradiction in the biblical narrative. Because nothing else that Paul writes or does conforms to what he states in those two passages. Now, biblical critics simply just say, well, it's human error. This, you know, the whole thing's full of errors or whatever. But for me, with a body of work that's so meticulously cohesive as the Bible, I'm not comfortable with that. That doesn't set right with me. Others dismiss it as merely Paul's opinion. He says, well, I don't let women teach. So, you know, that was his point of view. That was his idea. That still paints Paul in a really schizophrenic light. He's, he's got these dueling opinions about this. Some suggest that it's a copyist insertion. You know, that's not part of the original work. A copyist wrote it in later on, and and 
added it. But again, that just seems so easy. Any part of the Bible then that I don't like, well, it's just, you know, that's just an interlocution. I don't have to pay attention to that. I'm not comfortable with that either. For most evangelicals, I would say, these are passages that are just ignored. <laughs> we just rarely ever get to that. It, especially like, so for us, I mean, we teach through the Bible and we teach through each passage. And so we've come to these passages before and, you know, what are you going to do with it? You can't just ignore it. Uh, they, these are passages that really only get dusted off <laughs> and used when some pesky Beth Moore comes along making waves for the men folk. Uh, here's the thing. I love God's word. I mean, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it. I love it. I hold it in high regard. I do. And I just believe that in defense of the biblical narrative and its flow from the Genesis account, what we lost, what the gospel intends to return to us, we need to do the hard work of interpreting these passages in a way that's going to validate the cohesion, the inspired cohesion of Scripture. I just feel strongly that, that the Bible is is worthy of defense this way instead of just, you know throwing things from the surface. And there are so many other passages that we do not take at surface value because we know very well it would paint us into corners or make life untenable. We have to interpret it all the time. And I believe this is one as well. Now listen, uh, 13 years ago, I did a detailed breakdown of of 1 Timothy 2. I laid out an argument. I went back and listened to it. I stand by it today. Uh, so for, if you want a really in-depth look at these things, I'll invite you to go to eastgatefellowship.net, go to our resources tab, go to Timothy, first Timothy and scroll down and the type, the, the name of the teaching is, uh, bailing on the stereotypes. And so you can go and listen to that. And, uh, in quick summary, uh, second or first Timothy two begins with Paul instructing men and women not to live according to the stereotypes of this fallen culture. He starts off saying, men, you don't need to be lifting your hands in violence and anger, trying to fight and be tough guys. Lift your hands to pray. And then he tells the women, don't be all about fashion. Don't see yourself as an object to just dress up. You've got better things to contribute for the community's well-being than that. And from there, he says these statements. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let a woman teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterwards he made Eve. And it wasn't Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live by faith, love, holiness, and modesty. All right, I follow Professor N.T. Wright's lead on this. And, and I believe, along with him, that Paul is, is asking the church to give space to women to learn. When he says be silent, he's speaking to the men. He's saying give them space to be able to learn humbly alongside of the men. This follows suit with something that happened earlier in the gospel accounts in Luke chapter 10. We won't go there, but you you probably remember the famous story of Mary and Martha uh, and how Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples learning and being instructed about the values and the purposes of the kingdom of God. And Martha was in doing all the cooking and everything, and she got upset and said to Jesus, hey, tell her 
to get in here and be doing the dishes with me, the women's work. And she was scandalized by the fact that Mary was out doing something that up until that moment, only the men were allowed to do. She didn't want her sister out there creating a scene, but Jesus affirmed Mary and said, no, she's doing the right thing. This is where this is going. This is what we're doing. She's chosen the needful thing here. Jesus says to Martha, you're worried about a lot of things. I don't believe he's talking about a lot of things in the kitchen. You're juggling a lot of pots and pans. He's saying you're worried about a lot of things on how this is perceived. But you need to understand there's something important going on here. God's about to undo what happened in the fall. And so, listen, women in both ancient and Jewish and Roman cultures were not permitted to get an education. You know, women in Israel, they weren't taught the Torah. I've gone over that extensively. We've got rabbinical writings that have said things like it'd be better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And so I believe Paul is trying to carve out a space for women to be able to learn alongside the men, untroubled, give her quiet, don't, don't bother her while she's there trying to learn alongside of the dudes. And the phrase, not letting a woman teach or take authority over a man, that is not two separate ideas in the Greek. It's a singular concept. Better worded, it would be, I don't let a woman teach by taking authority over a man. And the word that he uses for authority, it only occurs this one time. This is the only time it happens in the New Testament. It's not the normal word for authority, which is exousia. This is the word authentes. It means taking control of someone violently or murdering them. Many scholars believe Paul is saying, I don't want women to teach in a way that is domineering or emasculating to men. In other words... Let the women learn. I'm not saying now it's their turn to subject men to a matriarchy. Let women be humble like the men should be in mutual submission. To me, that reading resolves the contradiction. He points back to Adam and Eve, reminds them that, you know, Adam didn't get deceived. He willfully went against God. But Eve was deceived. So he's emphasizing the idea she needs space to learn because if we're going to be a team... We've got to learn these things together. We've got to develop this together. Well, Rob, what about the childbirth thing? You know, what about salvation through childbirth? (laughs) Well, so we just got to think about that. He's either saying that women gain salvation through the work of childbearing, which contradicts everything else in the New Testament about salvation through works, or he's referencing something else, more likely the idea that Christ and salvation came into the world through the birth of, you know, through normal childbirth. A woman bore him. Jesus was born of a woman. Paul made a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 11, trying to explain how men and women should cooperate. Look at what he wrote in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. But among the Lord's people, that's us, if you don't know, uh, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman. And everything, and this is the line, everything comes from God. He resolves on our equality as God's creation, reminding us that humility is the goal in this. I think it's a similar point to what he's making in First Timothy 2. And again, it points back to the Genesis ideal. God made the male and female to represent God's reign in loving rule over creation. Now, when it comes to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says the woman should be silent 
Some believe, especially because of the, 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 the Greek grammatical construction, they believe it's a singular situation where a woman was disruptively asking questions during the time of worship. Eugene Peterson interprets it this way in his paraphrase of the message. That's one way to resolve it. The New Living Translation puts it this way, and it's pretty consistent with all the other translations. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. If they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in a church meeting. One thing that we know about First and Second Corinthians is that all through those letters, Paul is correcting things that had developed within the church there in Corinth. And he, a lot of times, is quoting their statements back to them and then correcting them. An example of that, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, all things are lawful to me. The NLT even goes ahead and puts quotation marks around it. All things are lawful to me. Then he corrects them, but not all things are helpful. He quotes them again. All things are lawful for me. Yeah, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, in the Greek, there are no quotation marks. There are no punctuation marks of any kind. We have to try to sort these things out. But that seems the logical progression of what's happening here. I'm largely convinced that when Paul says in, in verse 34, women should be silent during the church meetings, it should have quotation marks around it. I believe he's quoting them because in the very next section, verse 36, he says, or do you think God's word originated with you Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? Or in other words, do you have the right to limit or restrict how God's word is given? It's a corrective statement. And the only thing that it could apply to is what was previously written. Otherwise, it makes zero sense in the middle of this thing. It's my contention Paul's correcting a faulty community rule in Corinth that was suggesting that women have to be silent in the church meetings. For me, that's a reasonable way to understand what would otherwise be totally contradictory for him because in just a few chapters back, chapter 11, he was instructing women how to follow the cultural protocols while prophesying. And unless he meant prophesying through pantomime or something like that, he must have expected them to use their voice in the church gathering. These are just a few quick explanations. Listen... This is an in-depth thing to have to get into and look at and study. But I, but I want you to catch the flow of this because we want to do more than just read something on the surface and, you know, oh, Judas went and hanged himself. Well, let's go. You know, it's a surface reading of the thing. We got to follow suit. It's, a, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. There is a flow to the biblical narrative. I'm convinced there's a cohesive story being told in this. It begins with this beautiful picture that gets corrupted and God's intent is to restore and bring it back to the beauty that it had before the intrusion uh, of the fall. Listen, uh, I stated before, I'm someone who places a high priority on and have a high regard for scripture. These interpretations settle what I believe would otherwise be contradictory to the flow of God's word. They are, in my estimation, and I mean, just for myself, after years of studying this, to me, it seems the most faithful way to read those passages, those two difficult passages that harmonize what the gospel is trying to communicate. Again, I realize I'm giving you my take. There are counter arguments to this, and I don't have time to go into all of those. 
uh, I'm not demanding that anybody agree with me as with anything else. I'm not demanding anything, but I'm letting you know this informs how it is that we go about uh, doing church here. And again, I realize someone could also say, ah, this is just going on with the culture too. Everybody's trying to empower the women's. And I want to be clear, that is not, that is not what motivates me. I can't state it strongly enough. I want to look you in the eye and tell you that is not what motivates me in this. What motivates me is what has always motivated me. I want to know what God's word says. Listen, I take issue with a lot of what is represented culturally because I see it doing exactly what I think Paul is warning us against. And that is trying to turn the tables where suddenly men are faced with being held in check and ruled over. And that's not God's intent either. Jesus didn't come to turn the tables. He came to flip the tables over. The issue is one of authority. And this is where we get it. This is where we trip up. Okay, so here we go. You're going to hear it now. We keep saying authority. It's about authority. Can a woman have authority over a man? We've got to have, you know, who's going to have a, a authority in this? And I just think that misses the point completely. No, a woman isn't to have authority over a man the way Paul was describing authority, nor would man have it over a woman that way. Nobody should be exercising power over people. That is the result of the curse. We were called to something higher and better than all of that. All of these petty power squabbles that we get so wound up in. The goal has never been to gain authority. The goal is to be like Jesus. And he came to serve and not be served. He came and laid down his life for friends. The goal is for both sexes to submit to each other. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the word for submit that he uses there means to lift the other person up. And that's the goal. The goal isn't to see to it that I have authority and you all recognize it. My goal, my goal has always been, I want to lift you up. I want you to see who you are. I want to see how significant and important and valuable you are in this world and how God views you through his great love. At Eastgate, we said before that that servant leadership is the goal. You're never going to find somebody sitting around on a cushiony pillow here, you know, giving orders or anything like that. You'll find somebody with a vacuum cleaner more likely than you'd find them with anything else that, that, you know, you you do here among the the people. And instead of joining the complementarian or egalitarian battleground, we believe that men and women are called to care for each other in humility, abandoning all grasps for power, authority, and rights. Because it's only in Christ that we're set free. It's only in Christ that we return to what it is God originally intended for us. So it's my contention that we don't limit women or men if God hasn't done so. We need each other. Just as in the beginning, God intends to make himself known through the diversity of our humanness, including the distinction between the sexes. So, I'm asking, let's in humility strive to be like Jesus. Let's follow him, not tradition, not culture. Let's follow Jesus 
back to our original place as image bearers of God with each other. Right on? That was weak. Right on? on. Okay, thank you. I was going to get nervous otherwise. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, uh, these are, are challenging things for us to work through together. And it's not always easy. But we pray, Father, that you, you lead us and guide us by your Spirit. And, and lead us through your Word, Father. Um, I pray, Father, that, that no one leaves here just taking my word for anything, but that all of us are inspired to get into your story and find out what you have in mind for us. And I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.